Okay. I think we're just about ready to. So good evening, everyone. I know that Leela has already told you how awesome you were. Is that the word you used? Um, but I just want to add my uh, appreciation for your awesomeness for making it through the first day, uh, at least almost the first day. And uh, I say that because it's, it's, uh, it is sometimes the first day is either like a, a bucking bronco, a swamp, uh, a, a detox center, any number of metaphors would apply. It's really very challenging to sit with ourselves, to uh, attend to all the untended uh, parts of ourselves, our bodies and our minds. But this is really the process of stopping uh, this and putting the light of attention on ourselves is what um, is what opens us to uh, that uh, natural happiness that the practice points to. Hafiz, in one of his poems, I know many of you know the ecstatic uh, poet Hafiz, he said, how did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. So that process of turning the light on, the first day of a retreat, you see a lot of rooms that have (laughs) been in the dark. I bet you didn't even know you had sensations, aches, pains, didn't even know the level of restlessness, didn't even know how, how, um, how much your mind moves. Did anybody notice any of that today? Is your mind a little busy? Well, here's what, um, just so that you know that you're, you are one with beings who've been doing this for centuries. This is uh, Francois Fenelon in 1651, said, as light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not any worse than we were. (laughs) On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter. And we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So it may not seem like whatever you were doing today was the beginning of a cure, but uh, this is what we, I'd like to talk a little bit about tonight, how the, sen- the essence of at least one way of talking about the essence of what we're doing is encompassed in a short uh, passage. I think it's from Rumi where he said, the cure for pain is in the pain. Uh, the cure for whatever, il- whatever uh, binds us 
uh, is brought by bringing that loving attention to it, by feeling it, by going right into it. Just put in a slightly more humorous way, I think the words of Bhante Gunaratna, uh, meditation teacher, also captures what, uh, what it's like when we begin to open to that swarm. He says, somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. <laughs> Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. He says the same thing. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way and you just never noticed. So even though the heart of awakening uh, is the recognition that the cure for whatever ails us is in feeling what ails us, the path is really about happiness. The Buddha was not called the great sufferer. He was called Sukhiya, or the happy one. But as I've mentioned a few times, the happiness of a Buddha, or the, the happiness of a Buddha, or the path to happiness, the path of happiness of a Buddha, is, <laughs> is, <laughs> is not the same as we usually associate with happiness. What we usually associate with happiness is the happiness of a good mood. And the happiness of a good mood can certainly be encompassed in the happiness of a Buddha. But the Buddha said very succinctly, very simply, that the highest happiness is peace. So we have to really consider what actually brings peace. And then, of course, we have to also notice what brings the opposite of peace, dis-ease, unsatisfactoriness, uh, um, anxiety, worry, fear, depression, all all the expressions of a heart or a mind that is not at peace. So the, the teachings and our practice, your practice will actually clarify this for yourself, even if no teachings were given. If you sat here long enough and paid attention to your mind, you would likely, over time, notice not just the, the contents of your mind, but you'd start to see the common themes. You'd start to see what we call the top ten tunes. And it would, the content would start being a little less interesting, and it be, would be more interesting to bear witness to the flow of experience, just like the flow of that whatever is going on with that window. (laughs) It appears, it disappears. You start to see that everything is in in flux. But in that process, you, you inevitably see, look at how much my mind inclines toward planning. Any of you see that today? How many, how Look at how much this mind is dwelling on remembering, on rehashing, or rehearsing, or, uh, or comparing. Any of you see that today? So many mind moments that are, uh, that are if we follow them, they are taking us into a, leading us into a state that is 
almost declaring, I cannot be completely happy right now. I can't be, I can't be at peace right now. And we may even think that it's inherent in these, the fact that these thoughts are arising that we can't be at peace. But it, that's not actually it. It's inherent in the tendency to follow these thoughts, to be absorbed them into them, to incarnate in them, and, and mistaken the thoughts that we have about ourselves and about our lives and the thoughts about time, to mistake that for reality and overlook the, the inherent peace that, uh, that we can find in this present moment. In any moment that we're not, you could say, looking ahead or looking back, or we're not wanting something to be different, we're not pushing something away, and we're not building a, a monument to it, giving it great meaning. Did any of you push anything away today? Any of you want what you didn't have? Any of you build a story about how your retreat was going? <laughs> These are the, the presence in our mind of what we call the, the three, um, it's a little dramatic, but sometimes called the three poisons. They're only poison because we tend to, they tend to, um, we tend not to really notice what our mind is doing. So the beauty of what our practice is, is we make a shift from being just carried along by these old reactions to uh, make that shift to noticing them. And in that moment of noticing, that moment of noticing, uh, moment of mindful attention, is, is really a moment that is without wanting things to be different. If you're noticing something, you're not wanting it to change, you're not pushing it away, and you're not building, you're not elaborating on it. You're not complicating the present moment. You're seeing it just the way it is. And you'll notice, even as you sit here tonight, if you just in these moments of listening, if you're not looking back and you're not looking ahead and you're just hearing, your senses open, you'll see probably a lot less suffering. As one of my teachers said, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. We begin to get a glimpse of that, at least in moments when we sit quietly, but mostly the first day it's just uh, dealing with the, the madhouse, wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control. But it does uh, get easier, gets better. So what does all this have to do with happiness? The Buddha being the happy one could make that uh, declaration or uh, be called that because something happened in his, in his own life. He was no different than any of us. And relative to his time, he lived in relative privilege, had what he needed, what he wanted, had, uh, had the range of sense experience and sensual delights, could just exhaust his, uh, anything he really wanted. And like us, relative to so many in the world who, who don't even have their basic needs met, uh, he was 
he was uh, anxious, dissatisfied, uh, unhappy, could not, was really not at peace. And his, as you, most of you know the story, his dad wanted him to go into his family business and, and be a, a kind of prince and lord over the lands. And he just didn't, he didn't feel that that was very satisfying. He even said at some point after, his, after he started to wake up a little bit, he says, if I have to do that, it would be like sitting on a bed of coals if there's no peace in my heart. So he's all, he, was, he was already at this point turning toward wanting, longing for. And so as you hear the word longing, it's important that we don't just conflate all kinds of desire uh, as the cause of suffering. Some desires lead to the end of it, lead, to, lead us back to ourselves. And, so everyone, every person here came here because of desire. So we don't, in our practice, adopt views about desires. But we do try to discern what kinds of desires keep leading us onward toward more dissatisfaction and which ones actually ease our hearts. And that's a lot of what he discerned in his own practice. What really turned him what really turned his heart toward this deeper longing, this longing for a reliable refuge, some place he could really rest and uh, an unshakable kind of peace, was seeing the obviousness of uh, the insecurity of life, the unreliability of life, the very definition, as the Wiley's Dictionary puts it, the definition of birth is the leading cause of death. The definition of birth is the leading cause of sickness, the leading cause of aging, old age, dying, death, leading cause of not getting what you want and not wanting what you get, loss, separation. It, it, all of that comes with being born. And he saw that that's just the nature of, of life, that, there's, that you certainly cannot cling to this... Um, to, as he called, to youth, the pride in youth. And any kind of pride that we have in our health is not very reliable. And any pride in life is not so reliable because eventually we, um, we all, if we're born, we die. So the realization of that caused in him a shock at first, a lot of dismay about the futility of trying to find something uh, reliable in things that are slipping through your finger like quicksand. And I think this is really an essential piece of facing, facing uh, the music about our existence. Even for those of you in here who are quite young, it comes a little bit more into your face as you age a little bit. But this is what... Jennifer Wellwood says, she says, my friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we missed it, have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like human right beings, 
but please let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There's not one anyway, and the cost is too high. We're not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Somehow her passage reminded me of Helen Keller, who said, uh, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do children as a whole experience it. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. But you have to have a little sense of humor about it, too. How do you feel when you reflect on sickness all day to death? First time I really took it in, I wept because I was so happy somebody was talking about it. But sometimes we tense up a little bit. So a little humor from Pablo Neruda. At least it was humorous to me. He says, what we know comes to so little, what we presume is so much, what we learn so laborious. We can only ask questions and die. (laughs) Better save all our pride for the city of the dead and the day of the carrion. Then when the wind shifts through the hollows of your skull, it will show you all manner of enigmatical things whispering truths in the void where your ears used to be. (laughs) So this was uh, the Buddha's meeting of what are called the heavenly messengers, of uh, an extremely uh, ill person, someone his own age, somebody who was very old, who he'd somehow been protected from seeing aging. And when he saw a corpse, this shook him up. And it led to that uh, kind of uh, revulsion towards seeking anything, seeking anything, not experiencing any, any, anything, but seeking anything that, um, that would, uh, would, give, um, would not give, quench that deep longing that he had. So he had, what had lit in his heart was that desire that no other desire could fulfill, that desire for freedom. It's that same, I I honestly believe it's that same desire that brings everyone to practice. That really drives everything that we do, but we tend to fall into such confusion that we look for it in all the wrong places. As you've heard the expression, looking for love in all the wrong places. So he started to uh, look around to see if there are any retreat centers. IMS wasn't in existence in those days. But there were some teachers offering teachings and practices. And he very quickly in his practice, because his interest was so undivided in 
finding the, the meaning of life, essentially, the deepest, uh, deepest place of rest, true happiness, which is what all of us share a desire for. So the Dalai Lama says all, what binds all of us is a desire for happiness and a desire to be free of suffering. It's really what makes us, uh, it, it's our shared humanity. So he practiced with a lot of gusto, and, but the teachers were only offering parts of what we offer here. The part of practice that where we gather our attention here and we sustain that attention, where we connect and we sustain, using the, the capacity that every human being has to really gather our attention into the present moment and stay there. But the practices that we, he, were doing, he was doing, with, the emphasis wasn't on being able to see with wisdom, but more to, for the, the heart or the mind to enter into a transcendent state where everything would stop. And very quickly, he entered into states of deep absorption, deep concentration, which are wonderful and healing, but they... Uh, they have some limitations. And he described that uh, feeling of unmixed happiness, uh, a mind that was completely free of any hindrances, any desire for anything to be different than the way it was, complete um, feeling of, um, of rapture, of well-being, of peace, unmixed happiness. It's nice for him, huh? And he saw that the pleasure, he'd had a lot of pleasure in his life. He had had, he had pretty much, as I said before, he had exhausted the, the kinds of pleasures that he could have. He had already practiced the, the art of uh, at least the one that is popularized in our media, where the, it's all characterized by this one fellow named Spence, who you've probably heard about in advertisements. Where Spence is the one who said uh, that he put a new twist on an old philosophy, which is to be one with everything, you have to have one of everything. <laughs> He'd already exhausted the notion that, that if he had one of everything, a, a taste of every sense door quenched, that it would lead to happiness. He saw that through that. And he saw that every single sensual experience, as delicious as they are, as wonderful a kind of pleasure and comfort can come from the satisfaction of, of some kind of hunger for an experience, no matter what experience that is, it leaves in its wake a feeling of loss. And that loss or that little hole is often quickly filled with what? Another desire. So depending on the world of the happiness that comes through satisfying our senses, he called worldly happiness or conventional happiness. He called it lokiya sukha. This is what he'd been playing in his whole life up until, up until he 
got into meditation practice. Lokiya Sukha means worldly happiness. But he also, it's also been translated as the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage, the happiness that depends on conditions being a certain way. So if I had my sense of happiness dependent on that window, not snoring, I wonder what you projected onto that one. This morning it was snoring, I'm sure. But uh, this evening it's a little bit different. It's... But if my sense of well-being was dependent on that, that would be I would be a slave to conditions, happy when it was quiet, unhappy when it's not. So he saw that the, the happiness of ordinary sense pleasures, as, as delicious as this world is, and our senses would not have been made so sensitive if the sensual world was not beautiful. We need to have our hearts gladdened by sense experience. It's what it brings a lot of a lot of delight and ease. But if we make it uh, our devotion, if we devote ourselves to that, otherwise known as clinging to that, then we are we fall into what he called misplaced faith putting our faith in something that actually leads us to feel um, continually more dissatisfied, caught on a wheel of endlessly looking for the next experience. Any of you relate to that? Even to the tendency, even to listen to Dharma talk sometimes, waiting to the end of the talk, or waiting to the end of the retreat or the end of the day or the end of the project or the mind that is continually in a state of, of looking. I call it the obsession with what's next. This is all because we have tended to associate our well-being with things that have left us lacking. And out of love for ourselves, we keep going in search. So this is no different for the, the prince uh, Siddhartha Gautama, 2,600 years ago. So here he was sitting, doing practice like we're doing here, and his mind, he didn't want anything. His mind was deliciously calm, a taste of a kind of liberation, liberated from that whole disturbing, endless, searching, what we call the samsaric loop, That was, the, that was what the teacher of the day was teaching. But he came to a realization that this was just ultimately a high-class form of worldly happiness. Because eventually, whatever that state was that he was experiencing, whatever that unmixed happiness that was temporarily, with the temporary abatement of any kind of disturbance or any kind of frustration or wanting or ill will or restlessness or doubt or whatever, eventually that state would, uh, it had a shelf life, it faded away. He said, this is, this is not true happiness. And that was, that was all that was offered. So he saw that there is a great happiness that one can have enjoying the world of the senses, and a tremendous happiness that can come 
with the happiness of a mind that is well concentrated, well collected. And this sense of well collectedness is uh, is a um, it's a springboard. It, it's if we don't have some taste of a, our mind undisturbed, it's hard to keep going in our practice. But it's very easy to be uh, seduced by it and think that's what the practice is all about. And he saw that this this is not reliable. This is actually lokia sukha, worldly happiness, the happiness of of slavery, the happiness of bondage. So at this point, there was nobody around to point him to uh, any kind of more reliable happiness or peace. So he's left on his on his own to figure it out. But he, what he tried first was, as I know many of you know the story, but I'm trying to uh, apply it to what you're doing here. He tried uh, trying to uh, transcend his body. Uh, to he did all kinds of ascetic practices, starving himself, denying himself pleasure, denying himself. Uh, hopefully. Be putting himself in such a, a state that his mind would transcend the, the body. And all that did to him was make him unable to practice, sick, tired, rigid, tight. And this is a reminder that uh, to go to any extreme of either indulgence in the pleasure of the senses or to, uh, or to, um, to repress or suppress the, the, uh, the sense experiences is not... Uh, is not about the practice. The freedom has to be bigger than both of those. Somewhere in, in the middle and beyond. So at this point, his ascetic friends, he said goodbye to. His sensual life, he said goodbye to as devotion. I always like to qualify this is that the point of of giving up the world is not giving up pleasure. It's, as Suzuki Roshi, a wonderful Zen master put it, he says, renunciation isn't giving up the things of this world, but it's understanding that they pass away, they go away. It's developing a wise relationship. It's letting go of our dependency, our clinging to situations, things, people, uh, near and afar being the way we want them to be. So at a certain point, uh, at this point, he, he was on his own, and he, he decided to, uh, that there, he hadn't found the reliable kind of happiness. But he used elements of what we're using here. He used this in his own internal uh, search. He continued his search on his own. And he aroused a lot of of concentration or arouse the conditions that bring, bring, um, give rise to concentration. That's what we're doing over and over. We don't concentrate our minds in our practice. All we do is bring our attention here and we stay here. We bring our attention here, we stay here, see what's here, pay attention to the flow of experience. And then at certain times, concentration, when conditions come together, we feel concentrated. 
So it's not something that you create. Any kind of concentration you create will, will make a kind of brittleness, a tightness in your mind. And it will be, it'll set you up for, uh, I'll be happy when I'm concentrated and unhappy when I'm not. And that completely goes against the, the, um, the spirit of letting go, of letting be, of things as they are. So the way that the Buddha discovered that there was a, another more refined, more reliable kind of happiness is he used his concentration, but instead of just letting himself revel in the state of unmixed happiness that he had before, instead he applied the, the light that became more concentrated, like a brighter light. And you'll notice as you're here, that the light in your mind will become brighter. And we notice it on, on, I think I may have mentioned it last night, we come to a retreat. In fact, I just, somebody just sent me a link on the, on the internet of uh, pictures that were done with several different people before and after a long practice period. And to a person, when they came into the practice period, the skin was kind of sallow, the eyes were kind of tight, everything was, was kind of contracted. And a few months later, or a few weeks later, I don't remember the, the duration of the retreat, serenity, light, literally radiant. And I've had that experience you know, every time I lead a retreat. That's what gives me so much confidence and faith in the practice is seeing that all of us have that light but we don't we don't gather it and we don't we don't activate it and it's it is truly our our deepest nature but it gets ignored um, because we're busy caught up in worldly in worldly pleasure so he applied that light of attention to attending to the body just like we're doing here today and attending to the moods and the emotions and the sounds and the, and the inner sights and the outer sights. He attended to whatever presented itself in his, in his mind. And the more he paid attention, and you may find this as you go along, the more you pay attention, even the difficult things that you pay attention to, and somebody said today that they were having uh, some intense sensations that they couldn't, uh, couldn't seem to get away from. Those very sensations, when attended to over and over, have the effect of bringing more brightness to the mind. And what he discovered as he was sitting there was that the more he paid attention to things, his mind began to shine in its clarity and reflect everything that was coming into all the different sense experiences so much more clearly, so much more precisely, and everything became much more interesting. But then he saw for himself those common laws that, that operate, that guide every, that are an aspect of every single experience. He saw that everything that came into his mind then went out of his mind. Every sensation that arose in his body changed and melted away. Every mood that came, that up until that point he thought that his body could define him, 
But then he saw that it was doing its own thing, a changing condition. He saw that he thought his moods could define him. He even saw that that was not, uh, there was no refuge in the, in the moods, no refuge in the body, even though it's a very useful anchor. But he saw that there was nothing there that could, he could say, this is me, this is mine. It was always changing. And the same with the thoughts. He saw the thoughts were arising and passing and like bubbles, and they were thinking themselves. And he saw that uh, the fact that they were changing is that they reminded him that it was not possible to really hold on to them. It wasn't possible to cling to them. It wasn't possible to say, this is who I am all the time. Stay here. Talk about control your, control your mind. He saw that it was out of control. It was not in control. But the more he saw this, the more, the more his mind stopped grabbing, stopped pushing away. And the same things were still flowing through his mind. In fact, all kinds of doubts and all kinds of um, seductions and all kinds of desires and everything came into his mind. But he, uh, but he stopped grabbing it. He stopped pushing away, pushing it away, and he stopped thinking it was him. Stopped identifying with it. And the more he did that, the more he began to feel this, this great joy. Sometimes, as Joseph Goldstein called it, I think he made this up, I don't know, called it uh, vipassana happiness. But really, it's the joy that we feel when, we're, when our mind is not caught up, when it's non-reactive. When we're, there's a great joy at seeing the, the coming and going of things and being intimately involved in it, but yet not, not moved. Not losing our balance. Not, losing, not, not having our well-being dependent on what's going on. And he saw that this was a glimpse in this moment. This was a glimpse of a happiness that didn't depend on circumstances didn't depend on satisfying any kind of hunger. In fact, there was no hunger in it. And it didn't mean that his mind had to be quiet. It didn't mean that he had to have everything he wanted. And he saw that this was, this was a taste of what has been called in the, in the teachings Lokutra Sukha. Lokutra Sukha means... Um, Lokutra means beyond the world, unstuck from the world. And when they talk about the world, it doesn't mean escaping the world. It just means the world of change, the world of the world of, of mind, the world of change that we tend to become caught up in, lost in, unstuck from reactivity. The happiness of uh, the happiness of equanimity, the happiness of freedom. 
the happiness that comes when our, our minds stop clinging, stop grasping. This is why at the heart of the Buddha's teaching, the, one of the most famous little short little passages from the Buddha is, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. Whoever's heard this has heard the entire teaching. Whoever practices this practice, has practiced the entire teaching. Whoever has realized this has realized the fruit of all the teaching. The freedom that comes from not grabbing. This is why Ajahn Sumedho, one of my, one of many of our favorite teachers, uh, says, recommends that all of us should reduce our practice down to two words, letting go. He says, rather than try to develop this, develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the sutras, study the Buddha psychology and learn Pali and Sanskrit and the Madhyamaka, the Prajnaparamita, get ordinations in the Hinayana, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana. These are all different traditions. Write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. He says, instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, (laughs) just let go, let go, let go. He says, I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you, for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There is nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> read the second half another night. (laughs) As Dana Falls writes in her poem, Allow, there's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Darn a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in the wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of your heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. The cure for pain is in the pain. So we come to a retreat mostly having innocently practiced a devotion to lokia, to worldly, to worldly pleasure. And we've been essentially sold a bill of goods. And it's just a cycle of ignorance. This is what Sogyal Rinpoche a Tibetan teacher said about it. He says, sometimes I think the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. 
Modern society seems to me to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and a depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, and sophisticated. It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it is so ingenious at setting for us. As one Lama put it, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions which promise happiness but lead only to misery. We're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us thirstier. I don't know why, but I get very happy when I read that. (laughs) It reminds me of a passage that was written on the walls of a cave in Thailand. A person who was practicing there, he he had died while he was of some kind of dungy fever. And when they went to find his body, they saw inscribed on the walls of the cave, oh, what a joy to know there's no happiness in this world. Be happy. (laughs) Of course, there's lots of happiness in this world. And the Buddha said that it is a great good fortune to be able to enjoy the world of the senses, that it is a mark that you have, that you are living a good life, that you are, that you have enough purity in your life, in your actions, that your mind is not so intensely reverberating from what you've said or you've done or haven't said or haven't done that you can't really take in the, the joy of the senses. But he said, don't stop there. Don't limit yourself. Don't fall into that misplaced faith. At least see that there is is a much more enduring kind of happiness, even in the happiness of concentration. Let it wash over you. Let yourself come to a one-pointedness, to that unmixed happiness, even if it is ultimately unreliable. But instead of just just, uh, letting the the bliss of, of, uh, of your pleasant states of mind take you over. Instead of getting caught up in that, apply that, that, uh, that pleasure and, the, and that light in your mind to see very clearly. Because the happiness of a Buddha depends on seeing into the nature of reality. It can never be separated from, from wisdom. And it's the wisdom that really unleashes our compassion that helps us to see that all of our, our spinning keeps us in a, a, an illusion of a kind of separation. It keeps us feeling like we're the, the one wave that's gotten separated from the ocean. When we all know that the, the wave can never be separate from the ocean. 
Well, as the, just getting back to the story, as the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, resting in that, um, in that more reliable, at least a glimpse of that more reliable uh, happiness of, of, uh, of equanimity, of and the taste of peace and the taste of being unstuck and not dependent on what was going on. Uh, as he sat there, in a flash of insight, his heart opened really wide, as wide as the world, his mind opened. And in a flash of insight, he realized, as we alluded to in various ways today, he realized that the very reliable refuge, the freedom that he had searched for, the the deepest source of peace was none other than the very nature of his own mind, nature of his own heart. And he realized that, that the very consciousness or the nature of his, the, of his mind through which he was perceiving was completely unconditional, unconditioned. It was deathless. It was already and always free. And in some way, takes no effort to recognize. But a lot of effort to brush the dust of confusion and memory so that that uh, clear mirror is uh, revealed. So at first he didn't think anybody would understand what he had recognized because it was so close. It was so wondrous and uh, so vast and some way, as the Tibetans would put it, so easy that we just have to stop, we just have to stop lifting out of this present moment in going out of ourselves in search. So he thought it was so subtle that he didn't think anybody could get it. But then he saw that there were those with, uh, as it said, who have just a little bit of dust on their eyes, who if pointed, told to put their tush on the cush, <laughs> pointed back to their to their, the, the capacity to be aware, to be awake, to be able to see clearly, to come to one's own understanding. He then, uh, out of compassion, which is the natural fruit of wisdom, couldn't resist spending the next 45 years um, teaching, sharing what he the things that he experienced are the things he taught. It came right out of the fabric of his life, just as your teachings will come out of the fabric of, of your life. Every person's path is a creation of, of, of your own life. But he decided to experiment a little bit by 
of finding someone to talk to about what he learned. But first he, he let out all kinds of songs, but I'll, I'll share those for another night. But then he went in search of his old ascetic friends because at least they had, even if they were deluded, confused, uh, having a, had a, even if they had a mistaken notion of what brings a reliable kind of happiness, still they had a deep sincerity. And he sat down with them and he basically said, uh, he said four things. And this was his diagnosis, and it included both his diagnosis and it included his prescription for how each of us, how any being who is interested, who can be taught, can come and see for themselves and to experience as, as he did what's sometimes called the sure heart's release. He basically said, there is in this life, all the things that I talked about earlier, there are things that are hard to bear. If you're born, you have stress. You have, as one story put it, uh, I think I'll just read the story and then this will basically encompass what the Buddha said. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made work, his work difficult told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children. Yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be the great teacher. The Buddha replied, sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough, others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. Then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, my teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that, asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. So his prescription for dealing with the 83 problems, with the fact of all the kinds of stresses that you have seen face to face today. You, may not, you maybe didn't just have a difficult day settling in. You were, have, you were also having direct insight into the first noble truth. His prescription was open to it, welcome it, <coughs> accept it. Stop fighting with it. Stop buying into the, um, the 84th problem. So that was the first truth, open to it. The third, the second truth, what causes, what causes the 83 problems to turn into a lot of mental suffering is that 84th problem. So we don't think we should have any. And when we don't think we should have any, that we think something's wrong, then our mind naturally enters into a state of wanting it to be different than the way it is. In all the ways 
You wanted today to be different than the way it is. You wanted your sitting, you wanted your walking, you wanted this Dharma talk, you wanted the meal, whatever it is in our mind that wants things to be different, keeps us in a state of, of uh, I call it a state of suspended happiness. A state, that state that has our happiness dependent on circumstances being the way that we want them to be. And that is really, um, that's what turns our basic um, stresses, basic things that are for everyone difficult to bear, it turns them into mental suffering. And for this cause of suffering, the Buddha suggested that you let it go, abandon that cause. And fortunately, he didn't stop with just talking about all the ways that we make a mess of our lives all the ways that we keep ourselves bound up in tension. He said, there's a third truth. There is an end to uh, this um, mental suffering. There's an end to what he called dukkha, that which is difficult to bear. And uh, there's freedom. It's possible to be free. And the prescription for this was realize it. Realize the freedom, the capacity within your own heart to sit in the middle of it all and be free, to stop fighting with reality. Realize that, moment by moment. And you may not realize it, but every moment, as I started to say before, every moment of mindful attention, you're erasing a little struggle. Because every moment of mindful attention is a moment free of grabbing, pushing away, and, uh, and creating confusion in our mind and delusion. So his prescription, realize this, moment by moment. And then finally, he said, there's a fourth truth. There's a path. And that path includes uh, cultivating uh, the, what he called purity of action, which brings the happiness of being able to enjoy this life and enjoy your relationships, enjoy the, 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 sense, sensory, the sensual world, that comes from purity of action and develop purity of mind, which is the second part of the Eightfold Path. Develop all the conditions that make your, that bring you energy, that bring you concentration, that bring you mindfulness, so that you can experience the joy of concentration, the joy of a mind that is, that is uh, malleable and well, uh, um, kind of able to, to be workable. And finally, apply that purity of action and purity of mind to purity of view, to the happiness that comes from seeing deeply into the nature of your own, uh, of the nature of reality, the joy of the joy of freedom that comes through seeing for yourself. That clinging leads to suffering; letting go leads to freedom. And the Buddha said so clearly, if it wasn't possible for any of us to do this, he wouldn't ask. So I'll just end with a, I know I went on a little bit. I'll end with a little poem that I, from a Tibetan teacher named uh, Gendon Rinpoche that I often uh, share, which I think encompasses both the practice of letting go and the uh, realization that uh, whatever you are looking for is already here. Happiness 
This is called uh, free and easy. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all and has little reality whatsoever. So why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything rises, vanishes, and reappears magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They're like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. Make use of the spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Everything unfolds by itself. So let's sit quietly for a moment. Don't need to change postures. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.